male actually ejaculates a packet of sperm into one of his arms and then basically slaps it into her while she's just not noticing and then that's it sperm's in job's done swim away this is not what you think i'm sasha rosen how little a body do you think you could get away with a head just a foot maybe guts maybe just teeth for a lot of animals that's all they get add a shell and you're probably some kind of mollusk they're a group of animals with so much variety that they include octopuses garden snails and even a giant squid Professor Ross Coleman is a biologist at Sydney University who specialises in studying limpets, you know, a kind of mollusk, and especially the way that they arrange themselves. Ross, thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Is it a good life to be some kind of mollusk? Yeah, I think mollusks do have it pretty good. Evolution has been kind to them. If you look at the diversity of life across the world, 95% of the life is invertebrate, and the bulk of those are either insects or mollusks. So they've done well. It's a successful floor plan. What do you need to be a mollusk? What are the minimum requirements? The fundamental part of a mollusk are two shells. Well, they evolve from a single-shelled organism, but an external shell. So they're an invertebrate, they don't have a backbone, but they evolve quite late and their calcifying skeleton is outside. But apart from that, they have squidgy bits. So they're quite recent evolution compared to the insects. They've got a great diversity of feeding forms. They're predators, decomposing detritivores, so they eat dead things, the herbivores... They're present in the deep sea through to the tops of mountains. They haven't yet learnt how to fly. So you wouldn't find them at the very tops of Everest because it's covered in deep snow. But virtually everywhere else you'll find them. Freshwater streams, you can pick up a rock and look underneath and there'll be a small snail there. If you live in the city, go and turn over flower pot and you'll find there's often a slug or a snail there. They're the dominant organism under the ice in the Antarctic. The Antarctic is different from the Arctic, where the Arctic is floating sea ice. And so if it's floating sea ice, there's nothing for a mollusk to attach to. But we do have pelagic mollusks. There are mollusks that swim. They never touch the bottom. And then we can go to the deep sea, the very deep sea, where essentially not much lives, and you'll find mollusks living in the sediment, filtering out food. If you go to a rocky shore, there's mollusks all over the place, but there's also mollusks in every sandy sediment. Soft sediments, muds and sands, will find bivalves, and most people are familiar with pippies, for example, or clams. Those things are all over the place, they're dominant biomass, and they're very important for cleaning water. In fact, people have used mollusks to clean docks in Liverpool, in England. The Albert Dock, people go there to go to the Beatles Museum and various other attractions, but in the 1980s, that was a stinking hole. The water was fetid, it was polluted. Rather than just remove the sediments, some biologists, Professor Stephen Hawking's, not to be confused with the astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, hung ropes of ordinary mussels. And they just filtered out all the seawater and turned it from somewhere that was stinking and polluted to somewhere that was actually quite pleasant to sit alongside. And that was a very low-cost solution to cleaning out the water. Would you want to eat those oysters? You could eat them, but you shouldn't. If you think about it, they're filters, and so they're concentrating those particularly heavy metals, etc. and you really wouldn't want to eat mollusks that are full of nasties. So there are all kinds of mollusks everywhere, but you specialise in one kind of mollusks. You're really interested in limpets. What does a limpet look like? They're about 15 to 50 millimetres long, so in an oval shape, or if you want to be absolutely pedantic, ovoid, and they have a conical shell. That's what most people see as the conical shell. 
if you really want to be a limpet nerd, you can actually use the shell to find the head end because the peak is usually asymmetric. So if you look at a cross-section, the peak is nearest the head end. There are some that that is not true, but in many of the bigger ones it is. Underneath that shell is a really, really strong muscular foot. We say foot, that's just for our reference. It doesn't quite look like a foot. The technical name for this group of mollusks are gastropods, which means stomach foot. And that's because basically their soft shell body, there's weird stuff that happens when these particular mollusks grow. They show a process called torsion, which is where the body, as it develops, twists, such as their anus is over their head. Then there's different sensory apparatus, so they have eyes and stalks. Those stalks stick out, they have receptors. They can't resolve an image, they can't see things, but they can see shade. So what they're sensing is changes in light patterns. Then they have little tentacles around the foot, which are largely for tasting what we would call chemosensory apparatus. They're sampling the chemical environment. Then the other amazing thing these guys have is their feeding structure is basically a tongue, which we call a radula. That tongue has got on it lots and lots of teeth. So their feeding is essentially a bit like a belt sander. So they scrape this along the rock surface, the teeth face backwards, tongue out, and as the tongue scrapes over the rock surface, it picks up particles of rock, but mainly particles of food. That then gets washed into what we think of as functionally like a mouth, and then the bits of food get washed off and go into the gut. All the sand goes all the way through and then comes out the other end. And that's pseudo-feces, they're not true feces because it's not the product of digestion, it's just they've got lots of rock in themselves. Limpets are there in huge abundances. You're talking really a sort of up to 100, maybe 120 per square metre on rocky shores in New South Wales. Probably higher density in places like South Africa, maybe in the UK, but they're there and they're ubiquitous. If it wasn't for limpets, your rocky shore would look very, very different. It would be covered in algae there would be no rocky shore. It would basically be vegetated, just covered in plant material. They keep that rock surface from being dominated by macroalgae, so that's big algae we can see. And this effect has been shown to be the strongest grazing effect of any organism in the marine system. My interest in limpets really stemmed from trying to explain this pattern. Why, if you go to a rocky shore, some limpets are in groups and some are on their own. In most places in the world, they forage when the tide's in. In some places where it's cool enough and damp enough, they'll forage when the tide is out because they're not getting cooked by the sun or they'll forage when the tide is out during the dark. But most of the time it's a tide-in cycle. And then they go back to a particular place. Now the other behaviour that's really associated with limpets is that of homing, where an animal goes back to the same place every single time. And it's only since we start sticking labels on them, and that's the other reason why limpets are great to work on. They don't mind having labels stuck to them. Literal labels, you're actually putting labels on the limpets. Yep. It's cheap science, bits of plastic, which, again, we have slight problems with. You know, adding more plastic to the ocean is never a good thing. So you're keeping track of these limpets as they go out, eat across the rocky surface, and then come and cluster together, yep. or so you assume you're trying to find out if that's what so they're So that doing. was the original assumption, and then some work I've done with a couple of colleagues, some in the UK and some in Hong Kong, has demonstrated that although it appears as if you've always got, say, five or six limpets in a particular location... It's not the same five or six limpets. But because we are not very good at recognising them, we don't look at them and say, oh, that's obviously the same animal, or not the same animal, we just assume it is. But it's just we're not very good at recognising individual limpets because they're just brownie colour. You would predict very different behaviours if it's the same organism coming back because 
you wouldn't know whether they're coming back because they're going back to that place or they're coming back because they want to be social. You might not believe this, but you can actually hear limpets grazing. Here is the sound of one actually feeding. What you can do is early in the morning or late in the evening when it's cool and damp, you can put your ear near to the rocks. If the limpets are moving around, you can hear them. I've done this in the UK where limpets are active during the day when the tide's out on steeply sloped surfaces you can actually hear the limpets all out feeding. So put your ear to the rock in a rock pool? Well not in a rock pool because then you get a wet head. The sound doesn't travel very well in water. Well it does, it travels very well but it's very difficult to work out where it's coming from. Just next to an ordinary rock surface where there's lots of limpets and it's cool and damp and they'll be out feeding and you can hear them. So in this next section, we're going to be talking about mollusk sex. Not really very salacious, but we will be making comparisons to some human sexual organ. And so if you're listening to this with kids in the car, you might want to skip ahead about five minutes. Are there boy limpets and girl limpets? Um, boy, girl, boy and girl, or girl and boy. So they've got every possible combination going. And in fact, that was one of the explanations for why limpets might be found in groups. Most limpets are simultaneously hermaphrodite, so they're male and female, at one stage in their life. They're actually sequential hermaphrodites in the, in the small ones. They start out male, then they become hermaphroditic, and then the big ones are predominantly female. And limpets, unlike other mollusks, reproduce just by chucking their gametes, their sex cells, out into the water column. They just rely on simple physics for the sex cells, the gametes, to meet, fuse and make new limpets. It's not the strangest of the mollusk reproduction systems. No. So mollusks have had to solve a couple of big problems. That Most of them are shelled. If you've got a shell, you've got to allow somehow to get sperm exchange in. So we're not going to talk about penises because most mollusks don't have them. So basically, fundamental reproduction is to get a packet of sperm or a lump of sperm to meet an egg. Some limpets do have an aversible, that means it can stick out, penis-like structure. But that is actually unusual. Most of them are broadcast spawners. They just chuck their gametes out. So it looked like fish releasing eggs yeah. and sperm and, into and the Because ocean. if you're a marine, that's an easy thing to do. With terrestrial mollusks, obviously they can't do that because... If you chuck a packet of sperm out into the air, it will just dry up. Unless there's water to act as a medium, the sperm and the egg can't meet. So mollusks have evolved some interesting strategies. One absolute classic is love darts. So the snails will basically go alongside each other, male and female, and the acting male will fire what looks like a little harpoon into the female, into the body of the female. These love darts, and they are called love darts, followed from Cupid, actually contain various chemicals, some of which switch on the female's reproductive system, and others stop her from running away. And then she will fire one back, and then they'll winch each other close, and they'll hold each other in position while sperm's transferred. What's the experience for the snail like? Is this aphrodisiac, or is this like a roofing? Well, whether it's Rohypnol or GHB, I don't really know which one is working. The answer is we just don't know. One of the interesting parts is there aren't that many people interested in mollusk sex. Let's be honest about it. Human sex is far more entertaining and attractive. 
But we do need to know how the world works. It's kind of surprising people aren't more interested in mollusk sex. Like, but that's not the only weird thing there is in the mollusk sex universe. No, so they have lots of other weird behaviours. And basically, for many organisms, sex is actually just a very brief flurry in their lives they have to reproduce. But also, if you look at spiders, for example, that's the one everybody's familiar with, the potential male is not only a source of sperm, it's also a potential source of nutrition. And that's common in other organisms. So animals have evolved means of doing this and also signalling. So cuttlefish, for example, spend a lot of time signalling to each other. Basically, you know, hey, I'm into it, you into it, that sort of thing. That's not, in a sense, watching gawky teenagers near a dance floor, etc., trying to, trying to cop off with each other. But it's more a question of saying, I am a supply of super sperm. And the lady is saying, you know, basically, my eggs are fantastic, so my genes are good. And also, my sperm is ready, my eggs are ready. Are we going to do this or what? So they flap their arms around. They don't flap their arms because they're not really arms. We call them arms. And they wave them in certain signals and then swim close to each other. And just when they're ready, the male actually ejaculates a packet of sperm into one of his arms. And then there's a modified structure at the end of the arm, basically slaps it into her while she's just not noticing. And then that's it, sperm's in, job's done, swim away. And then there's different behaviours after that. In some cases, the female will then just lay the eggs and then she'll just die. Many of the octopods, or many of the cuttlefish and the cephalopods, reproduce only once and then they die. And then the male will stay and guard the eggs. In some cases, they're just abandoned. They're just left, wandered off, and both animals will die. It's quite rare for the cephalopods that they will go through multiple generations. They're usually called univoltine. They'll lay one egg cycle and then that's it, they'll die. So mollusks have interesting and complicated sex, which explains why they are everywhere. But how are mollusks ubiquity? How is them being everywhere interacting with an increasingly urbanised world along the coastline? Okay, that's, that's actually a really interesting question because the assumption that mollusks are everywhere gets a little bit difficult when we look at an urbanised environment. So the reality is that most of the world's population now lives in cities and most of those cities are on the coast. To protect what we would call urban infrastructure, um, people build seawalls. So those seawalls could be coastal defences to stop waves washing in, or as, as happens in Sydney, basically to create real estate. So if you take a beach, which is often a sloping structure, and you want to put a house on it, you need a level surface. If you build a wall into the water, you can then backfill that, create a level surface, and you've actually made land that wasn't really there before. And one of the interesting patterns noted by my predecessors at the University of Sydney was that these seawalls actually have fewer limpets than you would expect. So, How many limpets would you expect in a regular? Well, in a normal rocky shore, we'd be looking at between 60 and 150 per square metre. And if you go to a seawall, you'll find that the grazing mollusks are just not there. And so... Like not at all? Or, or, or they're in very small numbers. And so my predecessors were trying to explain this. And we still don't know why the mollusks aren't there, considering they're a key part of how rocky shores function. So the idea is that you've got a hard surface in the sea, it's like a rocky surface, and they should behave the same, but they don't. What can we do to the surface of the seawalls 
to make mollusks come back. It is better for us if we do something that has a minimal effect. We're not being ultra-environmentalist and saying, no, we can't have development. Development is going to happen. It's a reality. So then we started to explore different ways of making seawalls better for marine life. And what we found through a number of years worth of experimentation is that you need surfaces that are rough because animals need to take refuge. Now, this is a problem. Marine organisms don't usually like smooth surfaces. So we found that if you make pits and crevices, then there's places for organisms to hide out bad conditions when it's really, really hot, for example. Then we found that that increased the number of organisms and it increased the variety of organisms, but not by much. So the next part of the research was what's missing. What's missing is structures that hold water when the tide goes out. Because if you look at a rocky shore, and this is how this is how I became a rocky shore biologist, was I spent a large part of my childhood fishing things out of rock pool. I probably didn't do the animals any good, but certainly helped my motivation. We looked at that and said, well, okay, what's missing are things that hold water. Building those into seawalls is incredibly expensive and hard work. But what we've come up with, we basically bolt flower pots. These are not high-tech structures. They are literally what they say on the tin. It's a flower pot. So you cut a flower pot in half and stick it on? Well, it turns out that flower pot manufacturers have been doing this for ages. So people who've got walls want to put plants on their wall. So it's not pots that sit on the ground. These are bolted to the wall and they have flat sides. Most flower pots have got holes in the bottom to drain the water out. These, we just said, can you make them without the hole in the bottom? And then the engineering part was create brackets that made sure that they weren't washed away. And we found, yes, if we put flower pots on, we can reintroduce some species of grazing snail. And it's incredibly successful to the extent now that we've expanded the research from Blackwattle Bay to nearly all of the foreshore frontage that is owned and managed by City of Sydney. So if you go down to Blackwattle Bay in Sydney, you can actually see these flower pots sitting out you in the can, ocean? You can, and there are some that have been there for nearly two years. They're functioning really well, and there's some that went in just before Christmas. What would happen to an environment like Blackwattle Bay, which is in the centre of Sydney, if animals like the snails went away? In some cases, I can't answer that because the surfaces we've got there, we've added animals in. If we took them away, they'd just be concrete. You may get some seaweed building up, but the seaweed has to arrive there. It's actually an interesting philosophical question, is what are we trying to achieve by making seawalls better? And when people say, are you trying to restore natural habitat? We're not. You, you can't do that because it's natural habitat. What we're actually trying to do is make things that we have to have better for biodiversity. And presumably because we're not quite sure what happens if we take them away. We can't really take them away when they weren't there in the first place. So that's the problem. You go back to the position that we have to have those seawalls because urban infrastructure requires it. And therefore, we can have a choice of having them as a desert. And they're basically seawalls with maybe a few oysters on, but nothing else. Or we try and say, OK, we've got an opportunity to turn that into some sort of more naturally functioning system. And that's what the challenge is now, is not necessary to recreate a rocky shore system, but to have something that has the properties of a naturally functioning system that then has other benefits. So it might attract fish, people can then go and interact with it, because for many urban residents, many people, going down and standing on a seawall is their nearest part that they can get to interacting with the natural marine environment. So in many senses, it literally is about finding a way for us to live together. Yes, it's a way of saying we can live better with nature. Ross, thanks very much for coming in. No worries. 
If you're interested in reading some more about Ross's research, we put a link up on our show page and in the podcast notes. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink to hear all the season's episodes and two seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get each episode one day early next season. Is there something you think we should be making a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. You can also text us on 0409-945-945. If you like this show, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts as well. You can choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Note What You Think is produced by Samira, additional production by Olivia Perry Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me, I'm Zasha Rosen. This is our final episode for season three. We'll be recording a new season very soon, starting with an episode about the reliability of other people's memory. Subscribe to our podcast via fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink, or by searching for Not What You Think, FBI, in your podcast app, and get that before it goes to air. Thanks for listening.